From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazine's The Monthly Quarterly. In this episode, we have a special guest. Well, they're all special, but in this case, I think you'll agree that Hawk Koch is particularly relevant with the SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild of America out on strike and how important Hollywood as an industry is to so many people in Ojai. Hawk's the former president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and was one of the key members of the Producers Guild of America that turned producing, which used to be kind of a, everybody on a film has to do something, but the producers are the ones that, they're the lion tamers of the circus of the film industry, make things happen. He's also got the most extensive range of credits as a producer, as an assistant director, as a location scout. I mean, he grew up in the business, his father was in the business, and uh, his insights into, and just how the business works, I think you're really going to enjoy. Hey, Hawk, thanks for joining me. Uh, good afternoon. Yeah, it's the double B. Yeah. Brett Brannigan, there he is. <laughs> well, I'm really eager to have you on here because with the SAG after strike and the WGA, um, this double strike going on at this time, and I imagine with your your connection, so many in Hollywood, that you probably have some divided loyalties. You're probably able to give us a perspective from both sides. Uh, I, I think I'm loyal to the business. So, <laughs> And uh, I think that... Uh, First of all, I have no idea, as much as you might think I have connections, uh, everybody's very tight to the vest. The good news is, and this is, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the date, but it's Friday, and uh, the good news is the Writers Guild and the AMPT, and as Billy Ray has said, AMPTC, not P, because they're not producers. I'm a producer. Yeah. There's a lot of producers. They're the company, A-M-P-T-C, company. Um, at least they're talking. And if they've talked all week. So that's a good sign. Yeah. Anytime they stay at the table, I feel. Yes. Like, uh, and I think that... Uh, you know, September 1st is coming soon where a lot of people have to pay rent yeah. and pay their bills. And so uh, it's been a very long strike. And uh, I'm hoping that if uh, if if the studios and the streamers who are two very separate they are indeed companies. Um, the networks are really vulnerable because it's new, new seasons. Coming well, the, yeah. And they they have different agendas. So how they're all, you know, it's different. To before the streamers, everybody kind of was on the same boat. So now you've got streamers and, and ABC, NBC, CBS, and then you've got Universal and Warners and, you know, all these others. And Apple and Netflix well, are sitting they, on big dragons, hordes of cash. Yeah, well, you've got you've got Silicon Valley and, and the old, you know, creative community down in Hollywood. So it's a it's a tough grind to try and figure out how you not you have to compromise with the Writers Guild and SAG after, but you also have to compromise between the entities that uh, they're they're up against. 
Yeah, I, I wonder, though. We've got the Hollywood business, and we've got the creative community at Oz, but are they missing the real enemy, which is just these big tech companies that are just big-footing everything? Well, that's what I said, AI. That's what I said, Silicon Valley. Um, yeah, they're... Amazon's business <laughs> is certainly not movies and streaming. And Apple has a couple other things besides, you know, uh, Apple TV. So uh, Netflix is the only one that really, they can't exist without content. Yes. And so. Uh, but they have a lot. They have quite a storehouse. Yeah, them. but you have a lot. I, I don't know about you. I try and go through and there's so many things that I go, no, I don't want to watch that. No, I don't want to watch that. Well, that's their leverage is that the amount of content out there, it'll take forever for people to get caught up to start demanding more. Well, I I, I'm kind of disagreeing with you. I think they've got to have new content every month to say, hey, look uh, what's coming just, now. Yeah, especially since they just jacked up subscriptions to like yeah. $15.50 a month. And, you know, it's they're going to go to ad, but they're not going to go to ads right away. And Or maybe they will. But without my other kind of anger towards the uh, the streamers is, like everybody else, if I make a good movie and it goes through the roof, I've got better leverage next time to uh, to make a better deal and go after something. And if I made a bomb, then they've got a bunch of leverage. But if I don't know, and nobody in the world knows who saw it, how many people saw it, what they thought, it's, um, it's no. very hard to... Uh, remunerate and create revenue for the creators. Yeah. Well, now Netflix holds on to their numbers very tightly, but Amazon and some of the others, you can kind of figure out how, how things are doing, right? Isn't there rankings and such? No, they're well, sitting on all their rankings. Info. I mean, I, Which who knows if it's know true about. or not? You know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. That goes back to the real threat, which I believe encompasses more than just Hollywood and the, and the creators and the producers and, and the whole, uh, you know, that back and forth. It seems like it's like a, a shadow spreading over everything, coming from Silicon Valley with all the artificial intelligence and people selling all their biometric data for... In perpetuity for like a hundred dollars, I heard Disney bought some somebody from some extra in the background. I, I, I'm not sure that's true. That does it doesn't that sound right. No, I think that's again. Well, they have the capacity to do. That. Yeah, they have the capacity to do it, but I don't know. For me, if you want to get into this, if you've seen Oppenheimer, and if you hadn't, oh, if you God. haven't, no, uh, you better go see it. Yeah, but I think it's you better go see it and then come back and then we'll talk. Yeah, but. Uh, that box was opened. <laughs> that drawer was opened in 1945, and the I, the uh, AI box is open now. And it's not just the business. It's not just the entertainment business. It's all businesses. It's all life that has been opened to AI. So I don't think of it as small for our business. It's what is it going to be regulated, and can it be regulated yeah. to not hurt? honestly humanity i wonder well just in case i salute our new digital overlords and pledge my my fealty just to cover my bases okay <laughs> but i wonder like like how would you organize 
against that. I mean, I see this rift between the money and the talent as being uh, kabuki, while all the rest of the stuff going on out there is the real threat. Well, I, th- I mean, I think that you how think do you regulate it? You I mean, like I, right I, now they're having those discussions. Yeah, but I think that uh, from what I know, and I know very little, but you're not going to write uh, in the heat of the night by AI, <laughs> and you're and you're not going to write not Oppenheimer by AI. And well, yeah, the other thing is that if. It is nothing but the streamers working on their algorithms. Just think of all the amazing talent or the, everything that we would not have because there's no way an AI is going to capture something like, I don't know, you mentioned In the Heat of the Night or Citizen Kane. or I just saw this very bizarre movie by Chantal Ackerman called Jean Dillman, 23-something Brussels. Three and a half hours long of this lonely widow peeling potatoes and stuff. And then the last 10 minutes, some shit happens that you will never unsee in your life. And it's like one, it is the most boring and the most memorable movie I've ever seen. That would never happen. That would never happen in in the world. Congratulations for sitting for three and a half hours. Well, I was going to all my chores. I was primed. It was just named, Sight and Sound just named it the best movie of the last hundred years. Where did you see it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I saw it through YouTube, maybe, or maybe no, it was on HBO of all places. Really? Or whatever. On Max now? Yeah. Huh? So you sat in your living room and watched it? Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, well, but I'm glad I went to see. I saw Oppenheimer in an IMAX screen, and that was the experience. Just the rumble. I can feel it even now. Just yeah, the thunder going on. How good was that music? <laughs> yeah, that yeah. was. Uh, and, and the the sound effects and the music alone, just yeah, it's a it's a once in a lifetime kind of movie. Uh, congratulations to Chris Nolan and Emma Thomas. Well, and Chris Nolan around. especially is, refuses to stream his product. Well, at, there are others who refuse too, and uh, there's a few that I wish refused, <laughs> uh, but uh, I won't I won't mention them. I won't call them out here. No. Yeah. So what would be the... Now, we talked... Uh, you were you were a return guest, one of the very few. Um, this was... I'm honored. ...years ago. Uh, the idea then was pandemic. Are people going to come back to the theaters? It feels like if you give them the product, they will. I'm very, very excited. Uh, Barbenheimer, uh, Mission Impossible... And there's still more movies coming out this year. And I think people finally have seen, oh, I can go to the movies and I'm not going to get COVID. Or if I get COVID, it's going to be a one day thing like I got a cold. Uh, And I can go see something original, unique. Uh, It doesn't have to be a franchise. It doesn't have to be Marvel. And uh, I want to go because I can't sit in my house anymore. I mean, who... I don't know anybody who wants to watch a comedy by themselves alone in a room when you could be laughing with everybody else. Yeah. I don't know anybody who wants to see a horror movie scream by themselves when they could be there. I don't know anybody who doesn't want to see a drama like Oppenheimer and come out and talk. I mean, when I got out 
as I was walking out of the theater, I was talking to everybody. We were all talking about it. And it's, you know, uh, and Molly and I wore pink to uh, see Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that a, wasn't that a, uh, that was a hoot. visual treat? Yes. That, yeah. that was uh, just an explosion of color. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's amazing to me that, is it Morocco or Algeria or somewhere that won't show the movie because it's... Too feminist. Yes. Too woke. Yeah. Yeah, that's a shame. Those are the countries that probably need to see it the most. Yeah. Yeah. Well... So I'm, I'm very positive yeah, that you, you give them product and we need the strikes to be over to continue to give them product. Uh, yeah. I think we've got a shot at... Uh, people going back to the movies i mean people are going back to the restaurants <laughs> yeah not maybe in la because of the strike but everywhere else people are going to the yeah. restaurants well i feel like oh is going to be impacted by that because a lot of that's a lot of our economy here a lot yeah. of our residents who work in the industry yeah yeah well I, I really thought that whole market however whoever came up with that barbenheim thing was perfect because I saw Oppenheimer first, then Barbie, which is the way it should be done. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, couldn't. Have, I'd rather have that, that eye candy to cleanse my palate after the wait. Yeah, I mean, we just had a discussion the other day, and somebody was bringing up Taiwan as chi China gonna go after Taiwan and America's official st strategic ambiguity. And I'm thinking, well, shit, that means South Korea, Japan, going to fast-track their nuclear programs. Oh, shit, here we go again. And that's because of Oppenheimer. I wouldn't have been so scared. And I kind of, you put, put things away in your mind, you compartmentalize them. But, you know, Prometheus. Uh, yeah, I... Bring her a fire. I, I don't think, I don't think nuclear weapons, everybody knows that the planet is gone with nuclear weapons. You, you don't get to stay as China if you use nuclear weapons. Uh, and you have to be off your rocker, excuse me, Putin, um, to use he them. might be, that's the problem. That, yeah, well, there are those might be, crazies. I'm, I'm on my way out. I'm going to take everyone I can with me. Yeah, it's, uh, again, Doctor Strange loves one of my top five movies of all time. Mine too, I just so, love that. Not top yeah. ten for sure. Yeah. Peter Sellers, I, I would wish he was around today. He would be just, I see so many roles he would have been perfect for. Yeah, oh, yeah. And he could have played three or four of them in the same movie. <laughs> and Kubrick, you know, he left, I don't know how many scripts he never made. Yeah, and, yeah, those and any one of them specials. Would. Well, yeah, the next one I'm excited about is a Napoleon script. Um, Gladiator uh, Ridley Scott. Because mm -hmm. it's going to be a spectacle. Yeah. But I read the Kubrick Napoleon script, which is long, is like 150 pages or something, but it's basically, you know, he he boils it down to a mama's boy with a slutty wife. But the battle scenes in that movie, 40, oh, sure. 40 thousand extras. Yeah, well, and now it's now two two hundred extras and forty thousand CGIs. <laughs> I wonder if. Kubrick would have gone along with that, whether he would have insisted. Like Barry Lyndon, you remember some of those sure, scenes there? Sure, sure. Well, but there was no CGI in Oppenheimer. That's what was so great. He didn't use, there were no vis effects. Even uh, no. the explosion? No. Royal no. of the plasma gas? Yeah, but that, that? But that, but I'm talking about major special effects. He did not want to do major, and didn't do major special effects on Oppenheimer. It was the way it used to be. Well, I'm, I'm kind of interested in seeing Maestro, actually. 
Who is the maestro? Maestro is um, the story of Leonard Bernstein. Oh God, yes, I've heard amazing things about that. Yeah, yeah. just and uh, Ryan, uh, not Ryan, uh, no, it's Bradley Cooper. Brad Cooper playing with a prosthetic nose. Yes, and I'm trying to remember. Did, I remember Leonard Bernstein doing those like Saturday morning shows where they try to get kids interested in classical music. I remember yeah. growing up on that. Yeah, I don't remember him having a big honker. He didn't have a big honker. He had a bigger honker than Bradley Cooper. Okay. All right. And and in what I've seen of the trailer, uh, they've done a masterful job having Bradley look like. There were a couple of shots that I went, wait a minute. Is that stock from Leonard Bernstein yeah. or is that Brad? And so uh, I... Did you know uh, Leonard Bernstein? Did you ever read no, Cross Pass? No, I, I, I wish I did. I, I did see West Side Story early on. I happened to be as a kid in New York, and we were lucky enough to get tickets the first couple of weeks that it opened. Yeah. And I was just blown away. Really? Is that just 1950, 1957, yeah. Wow. You were just a kid. Yeah. I wish I was younger than I was then, but no, I was 12. Wow. That's quite an experience. Yeah, what else is out there on the horizon? Because I worry the pipeline isn't this. There's going to be a gap in the pipeline. Well, uh, Flower Moon, uh, Scorsese's film. Oh, yeah, the the, uh, Osage uh, murders. Right. uh, The beginning of the FBI. Right. Great book. I really enjoyed that book. Yeah. and uh, Who's in that? Everybody. (laughs) Is that Leonard? De Niro and DiCaprio uh, and Marty's directing. So you know it's a... They've been pushing it for a long time yeah so uh, uh he, he needs to make another good one because he made a couple of stinkers i was gonna say the last uh I, the irishman didn't left me a little little yeah. cold i know somebody that knew he just passed away sadly that knew the who was the irishman what was his name in real life he told me he was just a big bullshit artist he didn't know where hoffa was buried or any of that but he told a good story what I said to my grandsons when they were going to college. I don't care what you want to do in the business. Learn how to be a storyteller. True storyteller, not a (laughs) fake storyteller. Well, I think that's the secret, you know. Going back to the theaters, that communal experience, we're such social creatures. And what bonds us is that story, that narrative glue. Isn't that exciting that people are going to go back? I just, I, I see it. It was, I think when we came out of the theater of Barbie... And went to dinner. We went in Ventura. And as we were coming back to our car, there was a line outside the theater. <laughs> we're ready to go for I, the I mean, I, Yeah. I mean, the last time I remember a line outside a theater was uh, Roland Emmerich's, uh, that, that uh, what was War it? War the Worlds? Or no, the, no, no. The one where, where the White House and the Capitol are being blown up. Will Smith. Oh, what yeah. was Independence Day. Independence Day. Yeah. I, those, and I used to live in L.A. and Yeah. And they... There were lines around the block. Well, that was a really fun movie. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It was no no Oppenheimer. Oh, no, no, no. no, Not, not uh, even a Barbie. No, they haven't, they haven't made an Oppenheimer in a long time. It's been a long time since we've had that kind of content in yeah. every phase. That should be nominated for about 15 Oscars. I wonder. I feel like the... Barbie movie's going to get some nods, too. Probably Amer- America Ferreira. Yeah, sure. I thought she was great, of course. I sure. feel like she's probably due. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Wonderful art direction and costume design. And I loved how they put the Ruth Handler character in there, because, you know, Barbie started as a fetish doll for German perverts. 
and then they turned it over to little girls like that. It's quite a story. So, what was her name? The the fetish doll was like Uli or something. I don't remember. I don't want to say, but my friend wrote a book about a bio, an authorized biography of Ruth Handler. Really? Robin Gerber. Yeah, back. Uh, Robin Gerber? Our Robin Gerber? Yeah, you know Robin. Very well. Did Hi, you Robin. Know she wrote a Ruth Handler. I did not know she wrote a Ruth Handler. Well, she's got a new play that's possibly going to Broadway. I'm yeah, very excited the, for her. The shot. Yeah. Yeah. Have you yeah. seen it? No. Oh, yeah. You know what? When during COVID, I think it was in Santa Barbara, and they had it on. Oh yeah, I was there the, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it was good. That was yeah. Sharon Lawrence is just so yeah. gorgeous. Oh my God. I mean, yeah. if I was Catherine Graham, I would be really flattered to have have her play me. <laughs> yeah. So there's stuff happening. I hope you know what. What do you think is the well? Let's rewind. You've been through a few strikes. What do you remember? You don't remember the 1960 strike, which is the last time the writers and the actors went out together. No, but I was uh, I was working at the 1973 strike, uh, writer strike, where um, I won't mention who, but we were the only. I was I was the assistant director on a movie called The Parallax View, very good oh, yeah. film. Alan Pakula, Warren Beatty, um, and we were able to shoot because. Uh, I think Paramount had said, well, we've got a script, you know, and so we don't need the writer. Yeah. And so we we were pretty lucky because nobody was shooting in L.A. and we'd get pages every day from a, I won't mention who, but from a damn good writer. And we'd call up Charlie McGuire was the production manager and I was the A.D. And one of us would pick up the pages and the other one would go, OK, move the company to to Marina Del Rey and we'd go and we'd call and get a permit in like two Minutes, seconds because yeah. there wasn't anything else happening. And uh, oh, I remember a terrible moment. We were shooting in the morgue at St. John's Hospital and I was there first thing in the morning to open the, and the guy opened the, the lock to the morgue and I said, there's nobody in there, is there? Because I'm going to bring a crew in. He said, no, no, it's totally clean. They're all in there, you know, in the refrigerators. And I walked in and there was a dead body laying on a slab. It was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. Really? And unfortunately, it was a pretty famous lady, Marion Ryan, the grandma in uh, Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, my goodness. I and it was like, oh, my God, that was something you would really? never forget. That was the first body you've ever seen. No, first body, na dead body I'd ever seen laying on a slab. Oh, I mean, I, you know. With a toe tag. Hmm. And probably someone that you knew at least had run into. Before. Well, that's what I'm saying. It was somebody that I recognized. Wow. You know, that was 1973. So how did that, what was the issue in that strike? What it always is, residuals, uh, What was pay. it, was there a change of technology? Because I remember 60, it was the television, the 80s, it was cable. No, this was just, this was just more money, uh, how you get paid, what you have to pay for rewrites, how many rewrites and polishes you're allowed. Do you remember uh, the triggering incident? Was there a dispute over a particular project or something? I, I honestly don't remember. Mm. I know that... Uh, no, uh-uh. I can't remember. I was there in 88. I was there in... Yeah. I was there in all the others. Well, here's a, here's a name that you probably don't know, but he was 
very influential. He was the head of SEG after a 60s, 70s, so that strike. And then he was brought back out of retirement in the 80s. Gary Ellingsworth was a negotiator. Nope. He was the only guy that Lou Wasserman would sit down with. Because he was just, he was such an old Bolshevik, but he was such a bullshit artist that he just would tell stories. And Lou Wasserman, he called the shots then. Yeah. And Sidney Korshak or Horshak? Oh, no, Sidney Korshak is a, uh, yeah, you, you didn't mocker. screw around with Sidney yeah. Korshak. He, he was like the, the fixer, right? Yeah. Lou he, was calling the shots, and then that was his. Sidney could, Sidney could get. Sydney could, if, if you need something done, Sydney will get it done. That was uh, maybe uh, like uh, Robert Duvall in The Godfather. Oh yeah, you know, the consigliere, right? Yeah, he he or, could uh, he could say the to Mr. Waltz, gee, a nice horse you got there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Or uh, Harvey Keitel in uh, Pulp Fiction. Oh yeah, yeah, right. But, uh, yeah, I was going to do a Lou Wasserman impression, but I can't remember. Lou, Lou Wasserman. Lou Wasserman. Did you, you, I'm sure you've run into him before. He had a lot oh, no, of no. I, I, I knew him, and uh, Edie and I were on several committees. I'm still on the board of the Motion Picture and Television Fund. So, do you think uh, Ohio was, or do you think uh, Hollywood was better off when there was a, when, when there was a Lou Wasserman, a titan like that, or a, a mogul? Let me answer the question this way. I think Hollywood was better off when the people who were make who were making the decisions at the studios or greenlighting films were people who loved films mm-hmm. and it was their that was their business. Today, most of the people running the companies that really have the greenlighting are people who have other businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, Universal is Comcast, right? Yeah. Warner Discovery. Um, there, uh, the stock is not because of be, because of the movies. Yeah. It's and so I, f- I find that what I heard recently is that maybe Peter, Peter Chernin, who has his own company, may be trying to broker. You know what's going on between the Writers Guild and and AMPTC. <laughs> um, at least Peter's a guy who has been around the block. He knows everybody, and uh, I guess it was in '88 or '94, whatever it was. Uh, Ken Ziffrin, you know, who was a, still a, a big attorney in in Hollywood. Kenny was able to go in and and broker. And I think it was the 88 one that finally uh, was it. Kenny was able to get that one done. But that he, one was, I believe it was the cable revenues. And that was a very simple contract, which I think had some kind of sunset clause or rollback. It was 2% of any and all revenue streams. Boy, you, you've you been doing your homework. No, no. Gary, uh, my SAG after uh guy he, he loved to tell us the stories uh, uh, those were the glory days for him when they go out on strike and trying to hold everybody on strike yeah Cause, well because writers and actors well there was i saw some funny tweet not i don't spend a lot of time on twitter x or whatever it's called now but somebody some some uh producer some studio exec was saying well wait till these writers and actors have not got paid in a while and then we'll see how they're motivated yeah that's 
And then, then the retweet was, said somebody who doesn't know any writers and actors. Yeah. Because not getting paid is a big part of their careers. Well, there's, um, to me, it's not just the writers and actors. Um, there's an awful lot of below-the-line people. Yeah. The cinematographers, the sound mixers, the grips, the, grips, the electric, the, key, key boys, the, 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 the teamsters, um, the, the script supervisors, yeah. the everybody, and, and not just in our business. There's the dry cleaner and the restaurant mm-hmm. and the, the painters and the construction guys who, you know, nobody can afford because they're not getting paid. And yeah. it's, what did I read? It's, what is it so far? Three billion so far in, in California. And it's an economic hit. Huge yeah. for everybody. And I don't know what year it was. Maybe you can tell me. But when the writers went on a strike and all of a sudden there were how many reality shows took the place of 24 episodes of whatever show it was. Mm-hmm. And all those writers never got a chance to ever come back. So I, it's a. It's a it's a real balancing act as to how much you're going to get and how much you're losing that never mu- you might never get back. Yeah. And I I want to talk about staffing for a minute. You haven't brought that up, but when I was and I'm going back a long way now. When I was an assistant director in the '60s and '70s, there was me and a second <laughs> second assistant director, mm-hmm. and there was everything that today there's a first. There's a second, there's a second, second, there's a third, and on and there's on a trainee, goes, yeah. all doing what we did then. Yeah. Now, I understand wanting to teach the people coming up how to do things, sure. but that doesn't mean that you have to have all those people sitting in a room when one or two people are the people that are doing it and everybody else is getting paid. Yeah. So that's... That's some one bloat, thing that I've got to. Some bloat. Yeah. That's one thing that I've got to. And then when, when they say, "Oh, well, you know, we're paying the actors a lot of money." Yeah. Well, you're paying one actor twenty million, and you're and paying the second actor zero. five million, and everybody else is getting scale. And then you average it out, and you say, "Well, look, look at all the millions we're giving to the actors." That doesn't work. That no. that well, math doesn't I, as work. As I understand it, only uh, to qualify for the health insurance seg after you got to make twenty six grand a year. Yes, thirteen percent actors make twenty six or more. Eighty seven percent of actors make less than twenty six grand a year. Yeah, I, I understand that, but even if they even if even if there was tons of content being made. I believe that 87% still would only be making less than 26,000 a year because those those people have other jobs there. Of course, yeah. They're not the actors. Or they're retired extras having fun saying watermelon, watermelon, watermelon in the restaurant scene and whatever the, the there are 13% who are working actors mm-hmm. and they're they're the ones who continue to get hired mm-hmm. and from from the top stars, to, you know, all the way down to people who just are getting scale, but they're making over twenty six thousand. Mm-hmm. Those are working actors. The other eighty five percent or eighty seven percent are, you know, are Uber drivers or rest or working in a restaurant or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever they're doing. But the, you know, the, I can't. 
because you call yourself this like there's a lot of people i'd like to know how many people call themselves producers yeah. <laughs> right I, I, how many people have come up to you i'm a hollywood producer you know well what have you produced mm-hmm. you can call yourself a producer but you better go be finding something else to do if you've never produced yeah well i got a funny story uh just listening to albus mitchell the what do they sure. call it? Yeah, I know Elvis, yeah. That interview with, um, goodness gracious, the br- guy from Brooklyn that did uh, Pie and all these Ang great Lee? movies. No. Oh, no. from Brooklyn. Yeah. Goodness, why am I blanking on his name? He's Dar- Daryl, uh, Darren Aronofsky. Oh, right. He had just made Black Swan, which yes. is one of the most beautiful movies ever made. Right. Won an Oscar. Natalie Portman was phenomenal. Right. But he was talking. I thought, oh, wow, he's going to talk about the artistry of this wonderful movie. He spent the whole episode bitching about money. He said he got, you know, he did The Wrestler for $2 million, made $60-plus million. He thought, well, next project, I'll have no problem getting money. Fox Earthlight signed him on to do this project. Natalie Portman took a year off to learn ballet. She was all in. And then he was... They pulled the money. They pulled the. He was only going to do it for six million. Can you imagine that beautiful movie? It was only made for six million. Yeah, I can. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but I can't. But but you know what? That that's been the story of Hollywood ever since the the studios broke up. In the old days, there was you know a chain of writers who were writing material, yeah. and the Arthur Freed is going to produce this, and Mervyn Leroy is going to produce that. Yeah. But in today's world, you can be the biggest hit, and. The next, you walk into the studio and say, I'd like to do this. And they go, yeah, okay, now nah, we don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter that you won the Oscar last year. Isn't that something? Yeah. Well, he was, he was saying that he got, you know, it was like two weeks out, no money. He got a tip that there was some guys in Texas that were interested in financing the movie. It was from poker buddies of his. So he went to this poker group in Texas and they gave him the money. They last $2 million to finish the film, but there were like 15 of them, and they all insisted on getting producer credits. So if you look at the credits of that oh, yeah, film, well, but- it's like Isabel the Cat and, you know, my uh, wife's mistress, don't say her name. Or, you know, it's yeah, like, but listen, oh, my God, Darren Aronofsky has to eat crap like that. Well, first of all, you know. I bet you've that- eaten a bucket or two of crap in your day. Yeah, but you know that Mark Gordon and I, when we were presidents of Producers Guild, got the PGA mark. Yeah, the bug. The bug. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're a member of the guild. It means that the Producers Guild has arbitrated your credit, and you did a majority of the functions of a real producer. Yeah. And we have 37 criteria that a producer must do and you've got to do a majority of those or you won't get the bug and you won't get an oscar without the bug you won't get a golden globe you won't get a bafta for you i'd hate to see one of these poker poker group buddies of uh from texas there get up and get an oscar but they don't i mean that's black swan that's what happened with uh was it uh crash oh steven uh, soderbergh film that was a really great film but uh yeah one best picture as well it should it was yeah but the one of the financers uh wanted to wanted to go up and get an oscar and everybody said no uh uh-uh sorry and he sued he sued the guild and he sued the academy and he lost he lost in lower courts was that after you had gotten no no this was before that was one of the reasons why we're precipitating event yeah yes uh all the way up to the california appeals court where they said no they're 
where they're independent associations, they can give awards to whoever they want to give awards to. <clears throat> just because you want a credit. Just because you want a Bigfoot on it. It's like Bullets Over Broadway. Remember that Woody Allen movie? Is that really what it, how it goes on? <clears throat> or was it uh, Chaz Palminteri with his mistress and everything? I barely remember that movie, but I there do are, it was like Let's just say there's a reason why cliches <laughs> are cliches. Uh, and and it's there's never an ever and an always and a never. Uh, sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. There are a lot of good people in our town also, yeah. who are have strong character and st- strong moral values. There isn't everybody isn't a Harvey Weinstein. Oh my God! Just the monstrosity of that and all the people who had to get in line and kiss the ring. Just. I, have to t- I mean, you know, pretty bad, yeah. pretty bad, and couldn't have happened th- to a more deserving character. But you know, it's not just Harvey. I mean, there were things that men got away with <laughs> that you can't get away with anymore. Thank God. Yeah, really, <laughs> you know. I mean, even if you, I can't imagine even in the day that you would have felt good about it, like the fanny pinching and the innuendo and the well, you know, there's calendars and the. Break room and studio, you know, the, the casting couch, it was called, right? Oh, God. You know, a, a studio head famous, I won't mention his name, but Harry Cohn had a had a tunnel Harry from, S. Cohn? from his from his office to an apartment oh. on the lot. Did you see Marilyn? Yeah. Or um, it wasn't named Marilyn. What was it? Uh, it it Anna, was Anna Darmus. Yeah. Oh, is she one of the most beautiful women who has ever lived? She's just <laughs> phenomenal. But that scene was just gruesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know that that, that wasn't, uh, people would say, oh, that wasn't, that was so so uh, absurd and surreal and it didn't, did a, that was based on a Joyce Carol Oates book. That wasn't a biopic. I felt that that got a truce about the business and celebrity and everything else. A lot of films didn't. Uh, again, this happened to many people, and it didn't happen to many other people. Yeah, I know. We can't it's, paint with yeah, a broad brush. Yes. Yeah. But this is, Hollywood is America's leading cultural export. Yeah, but I don't think that's, I don't think that kind of harassment and sexual is favors. Is now. I don't think it's been flying since right. 2017 or whenever yeah. it was that Weinstein was exposed. I think everybody, I know that, uh, uh, the studios actually put together a uh, a deck a showing f- for everybody what you can and cannot do anymore, and everybody in the studio, whether it was the the head of the studio or somebody who was working in the paint shop, had to look at it. Yeah, that's. I remember in the, I was in the military for six years, and they called the office social actions, and it was all well. You did know, you the films did, those training films, and we'd have. Speakers come in and talk about their experiences and the discrimination and well, did you I see mean, civil uh, rights marchers and you know it was a yeah. reminder of what's at stake. What are you fighting for? Did you see the Invisible War? No. See it. It's a. Uh, I will I'll make the, a note. Documentary that uh, was nominated for an Oscar in 2012 or 13. It's by Amy Ziering, uh, who also did. Um, uh, just look up Amy Ziering and go and and watch all their. I know the, I've heard the title. Before. Yeah. Oh no. It's 
And now look what's happening. Was it Camp Pendleton? They, the, the Army wouldn't give up or the Marines wouldn't give up whoever the guy was that had a 13-year-old in, uh, in his barracks. Oh, my God. And, and with, you know, child sex uh, uh, trafficking. Oh, well, now i got to check that out for sure. That was nothing on my experience matches up with that. But there was some shady goings-on. I remember my base commander when I was at Lowry before I went overseas. What, when were you overseas? Uh, well, I was in the service 79-85. I was overseas 81-85. Where? RAF Mildenhall. About Germany? An north of, no, an hour north of London. Oh, it was a sweet, oh. sweet posting. Yeah, Swiss hosting. Yeah, you missed Vietnam, thank you. <laughs> yes. Well, my brothers didn't, unfortunately. Oh, I yeah. hope they're okay. Oh, of course. My one brother got shot, but it was uh, took it took one in the arm. And his elbow is pretty useless, but he's re- rehabilitated himself. Mm. He can still write and okay. do stuff like that. But you know, where I come from, that's what you do. Nobody goes to college; they go to the service. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still for uh, you know for coming from you know that kind of hillbilly country. That's still the way out. Where are you from? Hillbilly country. Where? Well, Western New York, which is you know the northern tip of the Appalachian Mountains, the Allegheny Mountains. Is that near Schenectady it. or further west? No, no, west? that's way further west. It's the furthest yeah. west you can get in New York and still be there. But it's right across. You Lake can look. Erie. Oh, yeah, you can look right across Lake Erie to Toronto, or not Toronto, but um, Port Char... Shit, uh, now I'm blanking. Uh, Port Colburn and St. Catharines were the two free cities where all the slaves went, and, uh, you know, the, the runaway slaves. and the uh, Underground Railroad. That was the terminus of the Underground Railroad, yeah. Mm. So all the churches and a lot of the people, the basements were all very important stops, and lots of ghost stories, and... The great history that went on with that. And, you know, for a poor area that's just farming. I mean, it wasn't poor back then. It was like some of the richest farmland in the world at that time. Still a very rich farmland, but it's all these, you know, they're growing for these Chinese markets, soybeans and stuff. It isn't these lovely little produce farms that mm-hmm. I grew up with that, you know, we that not, you know, my dad was a farmer. Wow. So that was... You know, I don't know how we got off on that track. I don't know, but are you writing a screenplay about it? I actually am writing a memoir slash cookbook. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I want my to know mom because... was addicted to uh, cooking shows. She loved Julia Child, Graham Kerr. She had all the Joy of Cooking books. And we had three acres under heavy cultivation besides the dairy operation. Oh. So we always had fresh amazing produce plus all the hunting and fishing we we put away six or seven deer in the freezer every year oh well congratulations you're writing a memoir i know you read mine yeah so uh that's uh, magic time yeah it's that's i can't wait to read your memoir yeah just getting it down on paper is quite an experience as you know oh yeah, yeah. just just yeah. the the way the memories just burble back up again good that you have them yeah my, yeah. my memory's still good thank god yeah. yeah well you've come you've talked about your childhood and just the magic of being on a movie set and it's just amazing make-believe yeah you still feel that yeah 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 it's <laughs> absolutely i mean it's you, you get to tell stories you get to make up stories you know yeah. whether it's my growing up was 
you know, cowboys and Indians and cavalry or the French Foreign Legion. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> jest. Remember that movie? Yeah, well... My dad made a movie called Desert Sands in Yuma, Arizona. Oh, wow. And one of my favorite stories is because they didn't have any money to make the movie. <clears throat> so they had 25, they got enough money for 25 horses and 25 Arab outfits with uh, the, the, the uh, was a scimitar? What is the? Oh, yeah, the curved sword. Is the scimitar, curved sword. Yeah. And they're up on top of a hill and you have a camera shooting down the length of the 25 horses. And they see action, and they come down the hill right to left to the bottom of the hill that you cut. And they say, and the wardrobe guy, all right, take them off. And underneath, they take off the Arab costume. There's a French Foreign Legion costume. <laughs> and the wardrobe guy puts a French Foreign Legion hat on them. They go up on the other hill with rifles and whatever they've got, lances and everything else. And you have a shot of them. Okay, Go down from left to right to the bottom, and then you cut and you go close up. Twelve of them put back on the thing, and you're tight, fighting between the two. I mean, as a, what was I? I was probably 12 or 13 years old. What a thrill to watch how that was made, you know? For, you know, they had very little money to make a movie like that, but you learn how you can make make movies. Yeah. You think about, um, like... Richard Rodriguez made El Mariachi for like $6,000. Yeah. Well, and today. What a career that he's had. Today, I mean, all, you know, everybody says, how, you know, how do I get in the movie business? I right say there. to them, go make a movie. Yeah. <laughs> you've got, you've got stuff that we didn't have. You can make a movie right now. I just wonder, Ojai, with amazing talent, all these great actors, writers, producers, we should do a movie. We should do an Ojai film. I'm going to get writing on the script right now. I'll get back to you. All right. I think it would be incredible. And why not? There's like such a concentration of talent here. It's like, I don't want to say like Athens or anything, but there is a critical mass when you get enough creative people together that stuff spontaneously combusts. As long as they don't have to call their entertainment and lawyers, lawyers and their agents in Hollywood. Oh, hey, yeah. what should I get for this? Yeah, because I think those scrappy little underdog projects are the ones that really uh, make careers and that everybody has the best memories of. And Hey, know. can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. Um, I've only been here, what, eight years, eight and a half years now. But there are, there's the Ojai Film Society. Festival and the Ojai Film Society. Yeah. And neither one seems to be really getting it together what if they combined and yeah. got together and showed great movies and as it was a year-round thing and put a festival together mm-hmm. that is a real i mean why shouldn't there's santa barbara the, everybody else oh with all of these great great people that are in our industry they'd all want to come and be part of this why don't yeah. the two of them i volunteered for both organizations on the board and taken tickets for the film society screenings we used to do in uh, right. sundays at t- i don't maybe you came a little after that but that was like the the cultural event of the week in ohio was going to see the great foreign was that at the, films, at the theater, at the theater when theater, before the yeah. flood when that when that water main broke in 2014 we kept the Film Society going for a while, doing screenings at Matilha, but it was just a lot of work and nobody's getting paid. And we did some events at Libby Bowl that were wonderful. We had this amazing screening of Rocky Horror Picture Show on Thanksgiving with hundreds of people. It was just such a blast. 
we worked our asses off and we made eight hundred dollars. But well, yes, the film society and the film festival. There's talks, you know. There's no particular animosity. It's just they haven't figured out the natural overlaps, and I think there's just a, you know, a lack of will. They've got yeah. their bubble and the other bubbles, and yeah. I but think I mean, it's you know, take there's one person with a with a big check to just go in there and say, I'm going to make this happen. The Santa Barbara Film Festival should have started here in Ojai because that was Linda Weinman who used to have my office here with Linda.com that really put that at the first rank by hiring that wonderful professor of film at UC Santa Barbara to be the director, which, you know, whatever that was 12 or 15 years ago, put that into the first rank almost immediately. Well, it could happen here. There's, there's no the reason. There's the Palm Springs Film Festival that my oh, friend my David God. Anson runs. Um, you know, any rate, um, it's just something to, something to think about here in Ohio. Yes, people. Anybody out there with any ideas or... Some inspiration, uh, you know where to get hold of Hawk. I'll post up his. Uh, no, no, no. His, <laughs> You'd have to get hold of Brett. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just trying to think about what's it going to look like going forward with, let's say they do make a deal. How long do you think it'll take before, you know, the new product's going to come? I just, you know, what's the lead time? It can't happen overnight, obviously. There's still going to be a three months. Has it been three months now? Oh, over oh, over a hundred months. Over a hundred days. The writers. It's Ugh. been uh, what almost. It's almost two months with uh, SAG. Uh, I'm hopeful we can start shooting again in January, February. Yeah, it's a long time away. Have you had conversations with people and what they're eager to get chomping at the bit on? Or? Oh yeah, everybody wants to go, but yeah, you know, I was at a dinner the other night so what are you working on and i said nothing <laughs> no. at the moment yeah. they're all sitting you know dormant yeah you know. anything you've been sifting through that looks promising uh yeah i'm i'm excited about a couple of things that i've been working on forever can you discuss it's one that? of the no 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 you don't want to Is say at this mo- yeah right yeah 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 well maybe um we'll come back and talk about them when they get made there you go <laughs> happy to do it so, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out exactly what it is that is going to solve all those problems, like with the talent and the production, against this threat of AI. You think it's going to have to be some kind of government regulation, huh? I do. I think it has uh, You. I don't know if you saw that 60 Minutes thing a few months ago where the head of AI who created this whole thing quit. Chat, chat GPT. Oh, yeah, because he was scared of the implications. Exactly. And the recklessness with which people are going into it. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, I, I, as I said, I'm scared for humanity, not, not the uh, industry. Not to pick on tech bros, but they have a lot of this God complex where they just think everything is just the lines of code to being manipulated well, and tweaked. Let's go back to, you mentioned Kubrick before. Let's talk about 2001. Let's talk about a movie that not many people saw in 1970 called Colossus, the Forbin Project. Hmm. It was written by Jim Bridges, great buddy James Bridges, who, you know, the theater at UCLA is named after him. He wrote and directed Paper Chase, Urban Cowboy, China Syndrome. Oh, my God. <laughs> but he wrote the Colossus, the Forbin Project, and it's about a computer taking over the uh, armed services of America. And n- missile strikes and launches. Well, you 19, know, 1970. 
Yeah. 1970. I think, well, Kubrick was thinking about that with 2001. He sure so. was. Yeah. But there was, a, you know, going back to Oppenheimer, there was a, when I was in the service, there was like filtering down through the ranks about an incident that we weren't really supposed to talk about, but everybody's been talking about it now. There was a, an error in the early warning system of a missile base on the Vladivostok or the eastern, the western a, a Pacific. Russian, yes, Russian base. Yes, Russian base. And the commander was determined that... His name was Sterling... Know, was his, what's his name? Sterling Hayden. <laughs> oh, from... Uh, what was that? Strangelove. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah another well, Kubrick. Oh. One of the great... Well, that's in my top five. Well, the thing I love about Kubrick is that, you know, here's a science fiction movie. Here's a... You know, uh, Barry Lynn, what would you call that? Like uh, Don Quixote, uh, you know, the, the travel of the the dunce or whatever. The um, Goodness gracious, what do you call oh, wait this? Wait a minute. A, what about the Armed Services? That's one of his greatest films. Oh, way back when, The Wings of Glory, or Paths of Glory? No, Paths of Glory, yes. But uh, what's the one where... Um, the real drill sergeant played the real drill sergeant. Oh, um, uh, full metal, full jacket. metal jacket. Oh God, that was fucking. I was just thinking for Vincent a man who was. For you. I think for a man who was in the service like you, you would have. Uh, I had some experiences like that. For really sure. enjoy that movie. Yeah, by enjoy you mean being terrified and triggered. <laughs> but I'm trying to remember a picaresque. That's what Barry Lyndon was a picaresque. But he did all these different movies and like a psychological thriller. Like anybody that can work cross genres like that today, I don't know, or that can round up the money. Well, to do it. I mean, yes, he was in the studio system, but William Wyler oh, there you could go. do The Best Years of Our Lives, Mrs. Miniver, uh, Ben Hur, oh, God, yeah. and Funny Girl, yeah. <laughs> and The Collector. The collector. With Samantha Egger and Terrence Stamp. Oh, you've never seen that? No. I oh, that Terrence is a scary Stamp. movie. No, he, he used to live here. I used to see him all the time. Bill Weiler? William Weiler? No, no, no. Uh, Terrence Stamp. Oh, Terrence Stamp, really? Yeah. He was yeah. Uh, on the cover, one of our covers. Is it up here? Yeah, right there. You see oh, yeah, there he is. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, when he first started, there's a great uh, Billy Budge. You ever oh, see it? Oh, yeah. It That's was, like a, in the gay canon because it's all uh, the homoerotic themes in there. Like, I never, I saw that movie. I didn't pick up on that, but I'm not gay, so I probably wouldn't. Malcolm, yeah. But um, yeah, what was I saying? We're talking about oh yeah, this the missile launch uh, going back to Oppenheimer. There was a, a scare that there was like these ICBMs heading towards Moscow detected on the space and you know six thousand you mean the russian guy was sending it the wrong way no the signal was coming that we were launching missiles at them and the commander of the base said well we only have 15 minutes to retaliate or we're going to be annihilated we have to launch we have to go through the launch sequence and this guy's saying i don't know something don't seem right something don't seem right why would they do that there'd be some you know red red phone calls there would be some chatter there'd be some noise there's got to be something we can't just do this and he overruled his commander at the threat of his own career great courage and it turned out to just be some electric anomaly when was, was this? some buzz in the system 82 83 i don't remember that but 
Well, that's you know we talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, yeah, that was closer. Yeah, to mutually assured destruction. Yes, because that was yeah. like peak missile time. You know, we have like less. Nineteen sixty-two. Yeah, we have less than a third of our former nuclear stockpile. Well, uh, rid an- of a lot. Another movie I was involved with. If you've never seen it, it's called Amazing Grace and Chuck. Did you ever see it? No, I've heard that though. Uh, it's. Uh, produced and written by a dear friend of mine, David Field, and directed by Mike Newell, who went on to do Four Weddings and a Funeral and all, oh, yeah, all those, those movies. Oh, yeah, great movies. Yeah. yeah, this is a real anti-nuclear movie starring uh, uh, Bill Peterson, Gregory Peck, Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, great cast. It's a really, really interesting... I'm not, I, I don't want to give away too much, but there's a little 12-year-old boy in Montana who... Uh, is a pitcher on a little league baseball team, and it's about to be opening, going to be opening day. And a buddy of his dad's uh, shows him in the his class, takes him down into a Minuteman missile silo in Montana, and explains about nuclear weapons. And it's the next day and uh, opening day, and the kid says to his dad, who's the coach. I don't want to pitch. And the dad says, what's something wrong with your arm? He said, no, I don't want to pitch until there's no more nuclear weapons. And the father says, oh, come on. We're in Podunk, Montana. Nobody's going to care about, nobody's going to know. He got a missile silo. He said, well, maybe not, but I'm not going to pitch. And a great basketball player for the Boston Celtics named Amazing Grace Smith, um, reads about it in the Boston Globe and on his way out to play an NBA game, stops in Montana and talks to this kid and decides he's not going to play basketball anymore. Oh, I've got to check this out. You've got to see this movie. misty-eyed just thinking about it. There you, well, yeah, watch it. Call me yeah. after you watch it. I will. I'm very proud of that film. I was yeah. president of a company. I didn't produce it. I was president of the company that Green Got it made. Yeah. 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 Well, what are you talking about, Jamie Lee Curtis? I just saw her in like one of the best hours of television I have ever seen. The what show was that? Bear. It was like season two, episode six or seven. Is that about the food? Yeah, it's yeah. about a restaurant in Chicago. And season right. two, it's about getting a, you know, a, a Michelin potential restaurant up and going, and everything that you go through on that. The first one's more like the family, family drama around this sandwich shop, but. She plays the mom who was just a total basket case all along. But, oh, the pathos. and the, You know, to have the comedy and the pathos so linked. I, not many people can pull that off. Yeah. Not like she can. Well, She's phenomenal. And Johnny Bernthal, our own very own Johnny Bernthal. Lives in my neighborhood. Oh, my yeah. God. He was just, I've never seen any anything more intense. Almost unwatchably intense. Wow. Wow. And I'm going to have to see it now. Everybody tell me about it. About I watched, bear, yeah. did you see A Small Light? No. Who's in that? It's on Hulu. And it's the story of a, true story of a woman who helped Otto Frank and their family. Oh. And it is one of the, it's eight episodes and wow. I remember hearing about what? that. I'm trying to, the oh. lady that plays the really lovely person, I can't remember. Oh, my Felicity, God. I, I, not Felicity Jones, but some. No, no, no. Her. I can't remember the woman's name. She's brilliant, and the piece is brilliant. Really brilliant. Hmm. So Anything that's that's there. really good. 
I got st stupidly, not stupidly, it's actually great fun. I don't know if you remember BoJack Horseman. It was like a comic. It's a animated show with uh, Will Arnaz playing a sitcom horse from the horsing around from the 80s. And it's all like three jokes a page, all self-referential insider industry stuff, but so fun. This show is not quite the same, but it's called Harley Quinn. It's a DC comic show, but it's right. animated. It's on right. Max, I guess. I still right. think HBO. Right. But it's just fun. It's like the character arc of these people when they have a show that has such great writing that you just feel invested in the characters. It doesn't matter if it's like cardboard cutouts or shadows. I or wonder whatever. how many writers there were on that show. Yeah. Well, I've heard that's part of the problem, that there are too many writers, that the writers' rooms are getting clogged up. Yeah, I bet you're just keeping your mouth shut about that, huh? <laughs> that that was part of the issue, was that they were just like... Well, you, you heard me talk about when I was an AD and how many more people yeah. there are doing the job that two people did. And you think that's why budgets get bloated? And Well, budgets get bloated for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But... Uh, they always pay the talent, the the actor or the director, mm -hmm. and everybody else. Well, we've got to cut. We've got to yeah. cut. We can't. We can't pay you what we've always paid you. Yeah. So, where's the? That's the thing, though, is that all these uh, shadowy uh, AGI figures out there have tons of capital, but they're all going to run everything by algorithm. You know, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, all these people, they want to get into the business. They can Bigfoot at anyone. Well, but but that's, what are they going to know? Are they going to be able to find a Amazing Grace and Chuck? No, or they're a not. Or Small Light? No, they're not. Which is the problem I spoke about earlier, which is yeah. they're not filmmakers. They're not film lovers. Yeah. They're money lovers. And I've always felt that there aren't seven deadly sins. There's one. And that's greed. Greed, you got it. Goes right back to everything, doesn't it? Yep, it all goes back to greed. Well, people say, uh, what is it, the uh, money is the root of all evil? No, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Well, but it's not just greed for money. It's greed for power, for lust. Well, for lust. money buys you the status, yeah. Then you can get whatever you want. Supposedly. No, except the Beatles told us differently, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, you can't buy love, but you can apparently rent it. <laughs> so, what do you what do you uh, what do you think about just you know the your career? Like, you probably got a few more arrows in your quiver. Um, I listen. I hope I get some of the projects that I've got done. Mm -hmm. But that's not. Oh my God! I have to get it done. I've done you know so many. That yeah. I'm really proud well, of. Well, I'm, I'm going to uh, maybe just list all, not list, but I'll number all your IMDb credits for people because it goes into the hundreds. Oh, I, I don't know anybody I, that's I, been, I, never I seen know. anything like it. Just scroll, 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 scroll. It's crazy. Um, so I'm really, I really love giving back. Like right now I'm doing uh, interviews for the Motion Picture and Television Fund. I'm interviewing uh, a great uh Agent who's 90 years old, Fred Spector, on Tuesday for the fund, and it's Facebook, and then it goes on YouTube, and then uh, in um, September I've got Jerry Zucker, oh, uh, lovely. and I've got Jerry Zucker, I've got Ed Begley Jr. Oh my God, he used to live here in Ohio. Yeah, and 
who else? Oh, and I've got a, a Carol Baum, a producer, uh, coming B-A-U-M? up. B-A-U-M? B-A-U-M, Carol Baum. Yeah, you, you look her up, you'll see all the stuff that she's done. Um, okay, I'll post so up I, link in the So I really enjoy that, and I'm just... Uh, there's a at the motion picture home they have a thing called the gray quill society and every thursday a bunch of the residents at the motion picture home get together probably 15 or 20 of them around a big table big rectangular table and six eight ten of them have written a two three four page story mm-hmm. about their lives or about something happened to them or and I've been going to these uh, because I'm on the board. I get to go and listen to them, and they th- they are so beautiful. Mm-hmm. There was a woman today, Friday. Yeah, yesterday I was there. There was a a woman who, before she read her piece, just said, "You know, all my life, whoever I met had an agenda, and I had an agenda. And what I love about this place is there's no agenda. Yeah. Nobody here has an agenda." And I thought, wow, what a wonderful, what a wonderful, wonderful realization, yeah. insight. Yeah. yeah. So these are these are people in their eighties and nineties, sh- sharp as a tack. Mm-hmm. There's this one woman, uh, Maggie Abbott, who's eighty nine years old. She weighs about forty pounds, <laughs> I think. But she she was Mick Jagger's agent. She was Peter Sellers' agent. Oh my God! In the '60s and '70s, you know, I mean, of the stories she can't tell are the ones you really want. Well, hear. But, she, but I've had some of those stories. I mean, <laughs> here's a story that she tells: is that Peter Ustinov was going to play um, uh, was going to play uh, Inspector Clouseau in the Pink Panther. Hmm. I can, and, I can see that. And Ava Gardner was going to be the, oh I think, the God. Capuchin. Number number three on my celebrity exception list. Right. And Blake Edwards evidently went to uh, Spain to meet with Ava. And Ava, I don't remember the rest of the story, but Ava turned it down. So Houstonoff turned it down. And they had two weeks before they were supposed to start shooting. Mm. And Maggie said, Jesus, Peter Sellers, he's the guy. And got him in to meet with Blake. And the rest is history. <laughs> oh, wow. No kidding. I mean, just, you know, that that's the kind of, I mean, I have, yeah, I have a story stuff. that... You know, I was fortunate enough to be working. Uh, I was president of a company called Raystar, Raystar Company, and we were able to get a script called Peggy Sue Got Married. Oh my God! And we, I love Nick Cage. By and, the way, I well, but we put Cage. together. At first, it was going to be Jonathan Demme directing and Deborah Winger starring, and I was thrilled. And Raystar yeah. was thrilled. Everybody was thrilled. What a great piece! And then Demme and Winger. Had a falling out. I've heard she's difficult. Yeah. Uh, they had a falling no out. No comment. And um, I was ready to stay with, we had to choose between Jonathan Demi and Deborah Winger. Well, I wanted to stay with Jonathan Demi, the filmmaker, because I thought there'd be a lot of yeah. actresses that could play Peggy Sue. Yeah. Well, wasn't that, uh, must have been fresh off of the diner, right? Uh, or diner? No. Um, no, Jonathan Demi had, well, it was before he did uh, Silence of the Lambs, but he had done that wonderful movie with uh, Melanie Griffith. Cherry 2000? No, no, no. This was, uh, 
working 1984, 83. I can't, I can't remember. Well, Diner, I think it was like 79. Yeah, but Diner was Barry Levinson. Oh, God damn it. I thought yeah. Jonathan, Jonathan Demi, because he's from Philly yeah, or somewhere. No. Yeah, no. So at any rate, the head of the company, the head of the people who were giving the money, yeah. he was a lawyer, and he said, no, we're staying with Deborah Winger. Why? Because as a lawyer, he used to represent Deborah Winger. Mm. So we lost Demi, and... Um, I'm trying to find another director. You wanted a story. Yeah. And so uh, I'm trying to find another director, and I get a call from the head of the studio to come over to his office. He's got an idea. And I walk into his office, and I've been sandbagged, and in there are Deborah Winger and Penny Marshall. Uh-oh. And now Penny Marshall has not directed a movie yet. This is before Jumping Jack Flash or Big before, or anything. Thelma and Louise. No, Thelma and oh. Louise again was uh, Ridley Scott. Why am I getting Penny Marshall? I don't know. Penny Marshall was project. Laverne and Shirley. Of course, yeah. yeah. Gary Marshall's daughter. Yeah, Gary Marshall's sister. sister. Right. Okay. So, at any rate, <clears throat> he said, this is, the, this is the director, and I didn't have a choice. And about a week later, at one in the morning, the writers are throwing pebbles at my window at my house (laughs) they come in crying what penny marshall wants to do to their script Mm -hmm. and i mean you remember the movie it was shot in santa rosa and motorcycle and beautiful stars and uh, and it's all about cars right what what uh, the lead guy drives a you know a 1960 chevy cherry blue you know Mm -hmm. um and so i went back to the head of the studio and said we we can't have him and um, the Ray Stark said to me, well, you better find a damn, I'll, I'll clean it up, damn good director, because if, if we're going to fire Penny, okay, I understand why, but you better find somebody. And ready to roll. That afternoon, I got a call from Barry Hirsch, who was a top lawyer in town, who said to me, hey, have you got anything for Francis Coppola? Oh my God, really? <laughs> swear to God, timing, yeah. timing and luck. And I said, yeah, he said, you know, he really needs something to blah, blah, blah. And I said, I know he's never done anything like this, but I had but known him. by, right? I mean, he's from San Francisco. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. So Francis got on, he loved it, blah, blah, blah. Now we're Francis and Deborah Winger. We're eight weeks out from shooting. We're in a budget meeting with the heads of TriStar Pictures, and I get a note, Rick Nasita's on the phone. Rick Nasita was the agent for Deborah Winger. Important. And I walk out. What's the matter, Rick? He said, well, Deborah Winger is in traction. She has a herniated disc and can't work for six months. Oh, God. So that's how we ended up getting Kathleen Turner. So from Deborah Winger and Jonathan Demme, we got Francis Coppola and... And uh, uh, Kathleen Turner. How did Nick Cage get a son? Well, Nick Cage related to Nick Francis? Cage was his yeah his nephew yeah, yeah. or not a nephew is it yeah maybe nephew I think he's a nephew yeah, yeah. but any rate oh he did it. not only Nick Cage we had Jim Carrey nobody had ever heard of hmm. uh, Joan Allen nobody had ever heard oh of oh my god I love oh her. go back and look at that cast I'm gonna but, check it out yeah thank like, Sue uh, I saw. Let's, story in Vanity Fair about Short Term 12, which is one of those movies made for like 60 grand about uh, kids graduating out of the foster care system 
and how they kind of toss him out with no resources as soon as they turn like 18. Uh. But it's a sweet film about how dedicated these, you know, these, oh, yeah. these, the staff, they're all like 21 or 22 years old. They're either still in college or barely getting out. But that's Brie Larson and Rami Malek, Lakeith Stanfield. All these people, they work for nothing. They were well, just but that's, again, that's when you, when you see where... What was the first movie of Michelle Pfeiffer? Speaking of, not uh, Grease Two. Does she go? M- maybe, that? maybe might have been Grease Two, but there's a lot of great actors had to start somewhere. Yeah, you know, I I was fortunate enough. I worked on a film called The Baby Maker that Jim Bridges wrote, hmm. starring Barbara Hershey, and there was a first time actor in it by the name of Scott Glenn. Oh wow! Okay, that was Scott's first movie, you know, and then I did Primal Fear, Edward Norton's first movie. Yeah, I saw that in your credits. You worked with Edward Norton. Did you know right away that he was going to be a, such a force? When he did the screen test, we all, when it, in the screen test, we did the scene where he changes personality from Aaron to oh, Roy. Yeah. That's the one about the um, priest. Yes. Yeah. Right. When he changed that personality in that screen test at Paramount on stage 10, I can tell you. <laughs> Richard Gere was shooting with him, and Richard had long hair because he had just come back from uh, Tibet. Tibet, yeah. And so, you know, he wasn't playing the lawyer, but after he did the scene, Richard turned to Gary Lucchese and me, the producing partners, and Greg Hoblet, the director, and he went, oh, my God. And the three of us were going, holy Christ, look at this guy. Because he kind of, he pulled a wool over his eye, our eyes. He... He came in, um, we thought he was from, like, Kentucky or West Virginia and, and had a stutter. Uh, he really had us. And then he changed, and it was like, what? Oh, no. Edward's a patrician guy who grew up in Columbia, Maryland. His grandfather was Charles Rouse, look him up, R-O-U-S-E, started... Uh, Coined the word mall, M-A-L-L, oh, yeah. and built Faneuil Hall and South Street Seaport, and, you know, and his father was a U.S. district attorney. A blue blood. <laughs> yes. And, you know, Yale Drama School. So none of this West Virginia stuff. So he blew us away. And we knew before we ever started shooting that, you know, that we, mark. Oh, yeah, that we had somebody really special. I still think of American History X as just being one of those. Oh man, I can't get out of my head. Brilliant, brilliant, and the way he—that's Ridley Scott's brother, right? Tony Scott didn't. No, 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 no. Again, you got it. I got my friend Peter says I have a lot of approximate. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Tony, whatever he was, but he and Edward did not get along. Tony, shoot, what was his last name? See, I I block out the guy's last name. Yeah. Um, well, I've heard if you go through the blooper reel on that movie, it's like the boom sticking into the scene, or really? somebody walking through with a, you know, it's there's like, if you go to YouTube, you can find the blooper reel for American History X, none of which you watch because Edward Norton is too magnetic, and Edward Furlong, who was in that movie too, is like another child prodigy. Hey Siri, who directed American History X? American Tony K. Tony K. Tony K. Okay. There you go. I knew it was a Tony. Yeah. And you knew it was a Tony. Tony, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really, uh, that's something else, really. Just to be able to see somebody getting their start and have such a great career. You must feel some 
sense of of pride or some some skin in the game. I do. Well, I like also that. produced a movie that he directed and starred in, which also I'm very proud of, called Keeping the Faith. Hmm. He and uh, and Ben Stiller about oh, a rabbi yeah. and a priest that fall in love with the same girl. I remember that. Yeah, it's a really good movie. Really proud of that film. Fun movie. And then he he produced or directed the. Motherless Brooklyn. Motherless Brooklyn about yes. Robert Moses. Yeah. yeah. With uh, Alec Baldwin. Yeah. That was very, that was great. Yeah, you know, no, Edward's fine. a, he's a talent. He's yeah. a talent. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else that you're thinking is, you know, maybe people aren't, that's not on their radar yet that they should be, should be taking a look at maybe? <sighs> I think Malcolm McDowell's a pretty good actor. <laughs> He's an up-and-comer. Yeah. <laughs> Keep an eye on that uh, boy. I think this woman in uh, A Small Light, um, uh, I can't remember up. her name, but when I was talking to a couple of casting director friends of mine, they were saying, oh, yeah, she's phenomenal. So they you know, they know her. Yeah. She's not a young woman. I mean, she's probably in her 30s or something, but yeah. wow. Isn't that something that actors, I, I just am so impressed by the ability to just become someone else, to embody that. Well, you know, I, I talk about it. In order to succeed, you have to have luck, timing, talent, luck, and luck. Yeah. <laughs> because there are a lot of great actors out there who yeah. we may never, never see. Of, yeah. Yeah. I've seen them, like even on the local boards, the art yeah. center. Some of these people are just like, you can't take your eyes off them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, my sales manager's an actor. You just met him when he came in. He's, huh. he's got one. He's one of those guys that right. just like, you, you you know him from around town, and he's up on stage. You don't recognize him at all. Yeah. You don't yeah. even, could not even make yeah. out that it's the same guy. Nothing is even costume or makeup or anything. It's just... To be able to embody somebody else, right. oh, well, yeah. like Nick Cage, like he's one that you think, well, he's got this. He plays Nick Cage basically in all the films. I don't think that's true at all. Did you yeah. see Pig? No, okay. I got to put that on your list. All right, I'll uh, put first it down. time director. It was one of those movies he made for the IRS. Right. It's probably shot in like six days for you know one hundred and ten thousand minus whatever they paid Nick Cage to get him assigned. But just beautiful. Such yeah. a gorgeous movie. I go to the, just thinking about the end of that movie, I'll get myself choked up. It's just beautiful. One of uh, the I'll tightest to... endings of any movie. Okay. And it's a food movie. It's about food. See, you got this thing with food. Bear, pig. You know, you oh, got, God, you, you're writing a memoir movies. about about your life and about the farm. 140 pounds. So where do you eat here? Where, where do, do you I eat? eat? Where's my Ojai Tortilla House? Around oh, the, the little, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that place is so good. But we're spoiled for choice in Ojai. A well, town of 7,500 people to support restaurants of this quality, that's that's. Rare. I'm excited to see what restaurants are going to come in the new... Uh, El Roblar Hotel. Yeah, El Roblar. Yeah, Werner Ebbing is quite a restaurateur. Well, I, I do go up to Carpinteria and go to his... Little Dom's. Yeah, I really like Little Dom's. Do you? I haven't been there. i got to check it out. Oh, well, you, could, you can get in a car and go as far as Carpinteria. I can. Right? I can do that. Well, in the meantime, um, it's been a real pleasure, Hawk. I've enjoyed this. Yeah. It's nice, nice to see you. Hey, everyone. Brett Bradigan. Just thinking out loud. So, yeah, that went a little long because it was so fascinating. I'm still, it's just, 
you know, I figure an hour conversation with people is going to be like, what we're going to run out of things to say. That has never happened. Some of them maybe run a little short, not because I didn't want to continue talking because they had something else going on and that's all the time they had available and I was happy to take it. But, you know, the list of films that Hawk has been intimately involved with that he has helped get made and that's really what he's doing is greenlit these films and made sure that people got paid and showed up on time and that the actors were cast and the million things that go into being a producer especially one who has so many ties to both the old Hollywood and the new Hollywood but films like Chinatown, Heaven Can Wait Primal Fear, Wayne's World is one that he's particularly proud of that he didn't talk about Rosemary's Baby, which uh, Kitty Wynn starred in, or was one of the stars in, our own Kitty Wynn, who I would love to get on the podcast. If you're listening to Kitty, come on. But, you know, Hawk has uh, friends on both sides of this issue. And like we talked about, the real threat isn't, you know, the studios or the the streamers even it's the big tech companies which have no particular affinity or understanding of the music business they have their algorithms which are so much smarter than all the rest of us and it's going to be a a different world eventually i'm hoping the strike gets revolved soon and probably by the time this podcast gets up even because things are moving fast going forward though it's going to be interesting great summer for film makes us very optimistic. The whole Bibenheimer phenomenon and Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, it's all just like a wonderful turn to this communal art because it's connecting audiences. And hopefully that's a little bit of this podcast here. Um, All six or ten of you or however many are listening. I really appreciate it. And uh, keep tuning in. That's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.